Welcome back to TRSI. Uh, I'm Michael Dwyer and today I'm delighted to be talking to Benjamin Boyce. Benjamin is coming to us from Olympia in the state of Washington over on the Pacific Coast in between Portland and Seattle, two hotspots at the moment. Benjamin is the, the narrator, uh, the chronicler of one of the most interesting stories uh, about uh, a rather unusual and alternative center of education, the Evergreen State College, which came to prominence. Well, Benjamin, let's you tell the story. <laughs> when does it start and how, do you, how, how come you're there and what kind of place it is in the beginning? Well, it came to prominence in 2017, basically on May 23rd is when the story broke, where a gaggle of student protesters showed up outside of the classroom of Brett Weinstein and live streamed themselves uh, berating him for his racism, having to do with some emails that he wrote uh, over the last few months. And the students live streamed their footage and they proceeded from kind of harassing Brett Weinstein to performing what are called struggle sessions or what I argue are struggle sessions with the administration later that day. And then the next day, which is the 24th of May, 2017, they took over the campus and rounded up teachers and administrators and uh, kind of blockaded the library. And you can argue took some hostages. And again, they live streamed that entire thing. The all that footage kind of hit the internet and then kind of uh, created a uh, ripple effect of attention. A lot of gawkers came and viewed the situation and took that footage of students acting absolutely, uh, I, I think, really, really crazy. Uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable how they acted. And because that footage was so salacious, a lot of people had a lot to say about it. While a lot of other kinds of people didn't want to talk about it whatsoever because it kind of uh, went up against certain narratives with regards to the conservative versus the, I guess, the mainstream liberal press. And I'm, of course, speaking from the United States perspective on what conservative and liberal are. Uh, while though while people were making hay of all this footage, I saw that they weren't really understanding what was going on. They were commenting on the students' behavior. Brett Weinstein, who was the faculty member who had been first kind of targeted by the protesters, he went on and did some uh, interviews with uh, you know Tucker Carlson on Fox News. But the more interesting interviews are with Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan, who are YouTube and and podcast uh, creators. And those uh, discussions he delves into the situation much more. However, I had been at the Evergreen State College since the winter of 2013, and I was kind of an older student, and I, I went there because of a range of reasons that we can maybe get into later, but I had been working within the media department, uh, you know, running events and working the camera and the video and the audio for these various different lectures, seminars, workshops. Plus, I had gone through various workshops and seminars myself as a student there. And what I had seen was a certain ideology be more and more implemented across the college that was responsible not only for the student's behavior, but the administration's reaction to that behavior, which is very quizzical. The behavior is off the charts crazy, and yet the administration 
ameliorated and kind of just bowed down to the students and gave them everything that it possibly could. And there was much more to the story than was being talked about. And because I had access to these you know, lectures, workshops, and canoe meetings, I began to do public records requests, get the footage, and then start to put out everything that I could about the college to really examine the causality between the behavior and the ideas. And these same ideas and this same behavior is being replicated now on a, you know, a worldwide stage, especially across the United States. I'm not going to talk with any certainty about international uh, protests, but we see a lot of similarity with regards to the rhetoric that is being promulgated by protesters and rioters and so on and so forth, as well from the corporate or the higher education level, we see the implementation of more and more workshops, more and more seminars, more and more group think sessions that are exactly the same down to you know the verbiage uh the rhetoric and the people who are promoting these ideas same thing as what happened at evergreen so the uh, i thought the story was over and i had been you know kind of collecting i collected hours and hours of footage and uh, thousands and thousands of documents before we get it you you reference an email also, we'll have to get back to the canoe because I think a lot of people won't know what yeah. the canoe is. But you said it all kicks off with the assertion that Brett Weinstein was a racist and he had sent out racist emails. Was there any validity to that? Where was that coming from? Okay, so that is what kicks off the story from the outsider's point of view because it's really easy to pay attention to one person and their struggle or their plot arc than to really understand all the different moving parts so the protesters decided to protest against brett weinstein but he was rather an afterthought they had planned a week of protests and demonstrations against the college which had taught them and i have the footage of this that all higher education institutions are inherently racist. The college taught the students that, and then the students used that to overthrow the college or to go through some sort of psychodrama of overthrowing the college. Um, but with regards to Brett Weinstein, there's a longer story there with regards to the faculty which would be the collection of the professors there, as well as some of the staff, promoting and implementing a number of different equity and inclusion and diversity kind of uh, things in their, you know, and how they operated. And Brett Weinstein made some noise about that a year before the protests actually happened, literally on May 23rd of 2016, he stands up in a faculty meeting and says that these, uh, the faculty wants to implement a uh, yearly review. So the faculty do a yearly review of themselves, a self-review, and that's just kind of part of their professional development. And, you know, it, it allows them to document their processes, professors, and then be kind of not graded, but evaluated, let's say, by the provost and the deans and so on and so forth. And the faculty wanted to implement a, a, a line item within each person's 
inventory or their self-evaluation about their work having to do with overcoming racism or implementing equity. And Brett Weinstein said, once we start to implement a ideological uh, kind of litmus test within our self-evaluations, that will be used to, you know, further uh, promote people based on ideology and potentially, you know, link to their being able to be promoted or potentially if you were of a certain group and you said that I am less racist, then one could reread that. It's like, okay, you were racist. So why are you working here? And, and that would provide documentation for this stain of racism, which is, uh, you know, a big no-no uh, in the United States right now, but Evergreen really wanted to make that a part of their moral matrix. So Brett Weinstein stood up against that. The faculty voted on it to go ahead with it anyways. They also, uh, under the guidance of the current president and the then president, George Bridges, uh, formed an equity inclusion and diversity panel that would give a number of uh, recommendations to the college as to how it should run with regards to closing these equity gaps. And an equity gap is that if you look at the statistics and you break down people by their race and their gender, and then you see that some races are ahead of others, and then you problematize that gap between one race and another, and then you try to bridge that gap. And so the college with their equity, diversity, and inclusion council, they begin to harvest data, and then they present that data and attach to that data, which is actually very poorly done data and very selectively chosen data. And there's parts of the data that are suppressed that don't fit a certain narrative, which is that certain races need more help than other races. We need to reallocate, redistribute resources, funds, and attention with regards to the academic context towards these embattled groups. Attached to this equity proposal was also hiring decisions based on these ideological litmus tests. And Brett Weinstein, as uh, well as a couple of other professors, decided to draw a line in the sand and say things are going too far. That equity inclusion proposal was accompanied by a pseudo-religious ceremony that I refer to as the canoe meeting because they all got into a metaphorical canoe and drummed their way into and out of uh, this you know, great land of uh, utopic equity. But that is kind of what started the argument on the faculty list serve or their email chain so we we, we fast forward a year from the, that 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 first meeting we're, we're now in this you said the students had already planned a week of yeah. purpose anyway the university has set up a premise whereby it hasn't in a sense invalidated itself by How do you mean? That, in the sense that all you know, that by all institutions of higher education are in are institutionally and systemically racist. Therefore, Evergreen is, as an institution, institutionally racist. So therefore, why wouldn't you, if you're a student and a student of color, rise up in revolution? So you said that Brett Weinstein is, in, in a sense, almost an afterthought in the midst of all of this. 
They ramshackled together a number of different events, and Brett Weinstein just happened to come up because of this thing called the Day of Absence that we could or could not get into. I think that that's a very small story, but it really illustrates that the progressive mindset is actually resurrecting segregation and other forms of you know things that we used to associate with racism. So, um, but they just wanted the students wanted individual you know to to slander to say that this. This is what we're talking about, about being in a racist, you know, environment and uh, this institution is racist because look at this one man who is arguing against equity. He's openly arguing against this thing that's going to solve all racist problems for all of history. Of course, he's racist. And then they were going to go from there on to other things. But Brad, Brett Weinstein stood his ground. And that's probably why he's so important to the, uh, to the entire story and why he makes the story make sense. Because he said, no, I'm actually not racist. If you actually look at the emails, you look at my students, you talk to my students of color, so-called, you'll see that I'm actually against racism. And, you know, he tried to stand up for himself, but the students had already decided that everything is racist that doesn't agree with a certain uh, kind of mindset. So how intimidating does it, did campus become? Okay, first of all, are we just talking about a handful of students here? Is this a widespread protest? Are most students just basically kind of keeping their heads down and trying to avoid trouble? Uh, you're, are you on campus at the time? How are you experiencing it? So if you crunch the numbers, it's probably about 5% of the student population at that time actually participated in any meaningful way with the protests themselves. But beyond that was a lot of agreement toward the process of equity, inclusion, diversity. And that agreement was, you know, uh, kind of positioned and uh, over the college itself by means of different workshops and orientations. Once the college president, George Bridges, comes into power in 2015, he makes the purpose or the telos of the school about being anti-racist. He basically says that the civil rights era and the work that we did was really important, but racism is still in the fabric of America and it is our sworn moral duty to defeat racism. So he he makes that that statement and he forms that as the guiding principle of the school. And that's reinforced by lectures, workshops, seminars, and so on. So there is a pallor over the campus that that is what this campus is about. This campus is about justice, specifically social justice. And the way that it's manifested is by we are going to divide everybody up based on their identity and then reassign them moral authority by saying that certain identities were privileged historically and certain identities were marginalized historically. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring down the privileged in order to raise up the marginalized. And so that is kind of the, the spirit of the college. So it's really difficult to say, well, you know, probably 5% of the student body participated in the actual protest, but that was kind of the way that everybody was supposed to think about what was going on in the college. And after that protest happened, and while it was happening, a incredibly thick, um, kind of a chilling effect occurred on campus where you weren't really allowed to speak against this narrative because they would cancel you. Like there were certain ways of thinking and speaking that you were not supposed to question. And if you look at the footage that I've assembled and even the classroom 
audio that that I shared there's definitely one narrative to rule them all and there's very little wiggle room around that and that's basically why I started to speak out not only did I have a bunch of information that needed to be shared in order to fill out the story but I also needed to just for my own sanity and my own integrity actually say what's going on and and to break that silence and you know ironically they were you know you'd be criticized as a white person for being silent and you'd be criticized if you said the wrong thing so I just said okay well I'm not going to be silent but I'm not going to say the wrong thing so let's let's dive into this Stuff. It just did it. Was there any sense with anybody that it seemed a strangely like a strange antithesis? This was a university set up in the sixties as part of the counterculture to try and get away from an old-fashioned orthodoxy of third-level education. Mm-hmm. It comes out of that free speech movement in the 60s and 70s in the west, on the west coast of the united states where it was everything was supposed to be about um debate and discussion i is it true the the college motto is let it all hang out yeah well it's uh omni exteris which is yeah let it all hang out so it, which is i think is bad latin it isn't great latin but i think the the, the spirit behind it is that that everything should be open everything should be discussed yeah. and yet yeah. this is you're now in a Maoist show trial. <laughs> yeah. You know, which isn't, you know, it's not like, it's not the highest expression of the liberal idea. But physically, I mean, just how did they, you said they, in, in this couple of days, they actually, these this group of students came on campus and they actually, they kind of took over the uh, parts of the physical structure. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that. I mean, they had, they, with staff and students. Okay, so on the 23rd, which, so, okay, I I made a documentary and it's going to be 24 episodes in length and I'm working on the last two episodes, so I'm almost done with it. But within my documentary, I basically try to lay out chronologically what happened with regards to the 23rd and the 24th of May. The 23rd of May begins with Brett Weinstein being protested and then there's this hours-long struggle session where the students berate the different authority figures that are put before them and kind of go through this really crazy trial. And then the students kind of disperse and they go and they terrorize the cooking staff or the cafe staff and you know then things are kind of over and the footage starts to surface the police chief stacy brown at that time she resigned shortly after the series of events she was very alarmed about the behavior that was going on and she received information that on the 24th which would be wednesday which would be the next day they were going to, the students were going to stage a Black Lives Matter protest at uh, 11 a.m. within the library. She emails the president that morning and says, we cannot keep this campus safe. We do not have the manpower. There's only two people on at any given time. These are the same people who've been basically kind of rioting or protesting in the nearby city of Olympia. I mean, Evergreen's in Olympia, but it's kind of removed from Olympia at the same time. Very kind of rural land. And plus, we're on the sound too, so there's all these kind of bays and shores and stuff like that. So she gives a warning to the president that we need to shut down. In order to ensure your safety, the best thing to do is just completely just close down the campus. The administration, George Bridges and his uh, VP of Student Affairs, Wendy Endress, decide not to do that. George Bridges says, no, it'll be fine. 
everything will be okay. So squarely in his court with regards to what happens later on. And had he, I would argue, had he closed the campus down, the story would not have been as big as it became. Because by not closing down, he ceded authority to the students. And he furthermore allowed them to think that they could control the campus and that they did represent the student body and that there was moral authority to do what they did. So what they did was they showed up on campus on Moss and they had some sort of hoedown in the red square it's called, which is the plaza in the middle of the college. And then they proceeded to take over the library building. And then somebody said that the cops were going to come, which they weren't going to come because George Bridges said specifically that, you know, stand down to the police. He hobbled the police and the police, therefore the campus police didn't call the, the cops from the city, but the students thought that that it happened. So they went and they barricaded all the doors in the library and set up like this, you know, kind of bypass, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I was never in communist Russia, but there's like these places that you go through, uh, you know, on the borders or whatever. There's a fancy name for that. Uh, checkpoints or something like that. And then the students went out and they actually covered the campus and went around to every adult and said, are you a staff member? And then pressured them to, you know, either get off campus or go directly to the library building so that we can hold you accountable for the racist actions of everybody uh, at this institution. They were going to staff members and telling them either leave campus or else go to the library. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I've seen the documentaries about Jim Jones. I would have been off campus. At this <laughs> yeah, you would have left. <laughs> oh, man, I would have been so quick. And the, the, frankly, I don't think I would have been on campus in the first place. But why are the, why are the staff being so... It, you, I, from They seem to be rather compliant or quiescent in all of this. This, why are I mean, these are the adults. These are the grown-ups. Why are they? Yeah, yeah. Not saying, okay, quietly maybe, but authoritatively saying, no, you do not yeah. do this. You don't yeah. have the right to do this. Yeah. You don't own this. This is a community, and you, if you want, you can. There are processes you can go through, but this is not the way you do this. Yes, yes, exactly. And that is one of the very big questions about this particular story that makes it actually very relevant to what's happening now within Seattle, Portland, and Chicago, and other democratic-held cities within the United States, which are experience, experiencing major unrest, and the leadership is kowtowing to those protesters, to the anarchists, and doing everything that they can to ameliorate these agents of chaos and blaming it furthermore upon a big bad guy outside of the city, shifting the blame to the world. And within the Evergreen State College, what you had was that George Bridges, the authority figure, cedes his authority to the student protesters. And as soon as he bows down to the protesters, now, people have literally bowed down to Black Lives Matter over the last couple months and all the way up to mayors of cities. It happened in Olympia down the road. He didn't literally bow down, but he did obey their commands to control his speech, to control his body, put his hands in his pocket, uh, to, to speak, to not to speak. They they kind of racked him over the coals and dismantled his authority. And once he ceded that authority, once he gave up that authority to the students, every subsequent level of hierarchy within the institution collapsed. So where were all the adults? They didn't have anything to stand on. Every, every 
everybody from the top to the bottom, as long as you were a official, you know, paid employee of the college, you were a part of that system and that system needed to be dismantled. So you really had nothing to stand on. Even me as a student, I had, I had nothing to stand on. I was told to speak, to be silent, to, to go this way, go that way. I just would passively not comply because they're a bunch of freaking toddlers. And I spent 15 years teaching toddlers, so I know basically how to keep my own bearing. But you see that George Bridges, as well as the mayor of Portland and the mayor of Seattle, they you know say, okay, well, we want to give you what we want. And we don't want the cops here. We know that you're embattled. And this is a great thing. We need to change the world for you. And we, we have to do this. This is a big problem. So we understand your frustration. So here, go ahead and take over the city. Go ahead and roam the campus with baseball bats. Go ahead and do that. And right. we will baseball they're roaming they're going around with baseball bats well there's actually that's a parallel between what happened at evergreen and what's happening happening now in portland so right now in portland there's just roaming bands of antifa going around terrorizing various different districts on the evergreen state college campus one of the leaders of the protest who is on foot film several times declaring his intention to take people hostage he forms a bat gang with his uh, groupies, and there's this deliciously terrible and ter terrifying image of them all hanging out with these baseball bats, and there's also footage of them uh, actually assaulting other students on campus because those students are writing hate speech on the campus you know, walls and stuff. And that hate speech actually comes down to, we want class, let's talk things out peacefully, and Brett Weinstein did it all for the nookie. So it's basically these completely you know, tepid statements are called now hate speech because they are not going around and writing fuck the police sorry to say that but that's literally what the pro protesters are writing on the walls and evergreen's racist and and if you go against that narrative whatsoever that's hate speech so so sorry i don't know if you're you know william golding's novel the lord of the flies but there seems to be a, a little an element of this of a bunch of kids who maybe weren't picked first in, for games, hmm. yeah, who have power now. To be honest, I mean, there's an element of this which sounds absurd, like an absurdist play or or a oh, strange yeah. comedy. But yeah. Also, it, it sounds like like absurdist, like comedy. a Dada race war. Yeah, but it also has that sense that, as these things often can be, a kind of a creepy, scary feeling to it as well. And did you ever feel? threatened or did you always just feel listen that they're, they're just toddlers i know how to handle them i i did not feel threatened um but i felt violated and this is kind of weird i don't know how to express this in terms that are you know like uh, really scientific and and cool sounding or like real sounding because it was i i felt a spiritual pressure over the campus. I felt a very dark force um, laying down on the campus in the wake of the protests. I felt something very bad had been summoned and had manifested. And I could only experience it directly as like this kind of 
inability to breathe and this kind of uh, this difficulty seeing I would get headaches on campus and like my heart would beat and I could barely breathe because there was just there was so much tension on the campus following that event. I didn't feel physically threatened. Uh, not at all. But the project of education had been completely uh, besmirched. This, they had turned this college into something that it was not. It was They turned it into a cult, and then they, they used that cult to summon something. And then they performed this re religious uh, kind of this religious ceremony in the form of dismantling and playing it through this morality play that was purposed to solve some sort of grand, uh, you know, negative thing in history, like to end all oppression, where you're going to play out this play kind of like a rain dance for justice in a way. But it was the opposite of justice. Everything sounded nice on the surface, they, equity, inclusion, diversity, but one step, two steps, three steps, all the way down underneath that was the opposite of that. It was neither social, it was antisocial, nor just. It was very unjust. Just is this is it too much to say that maybe it was also an interesting experience in that it gave you a, an insight in how when you look back in history and you wonder how did large groups of people end up becoming pliant or compliant with something which they didn't agree with? Yeah. It, this you this went on for a few days or a couple of weeks. It yeah. wasn't, and this it was in a small place. But you, the way you describe it it almost immediately had a, an effect on the people there that mm -hmm. creating a sense that dissent disappears mm -hmm. incredibly yeah. quickly. And everybody, you, you like to think that all these young, bright students will stand up and say, oh, go away. But this isn't what happens for some reason. What do they want? What do they actually the want? The protesters? Yeah, what was it? I, 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 I will recommend at the end that everybody direct to your videos because I can remember one, one of the videos talked about the list. Mm, yeah. It really does sound like a 10-year-old, a, a politically aware 10-year-old sitting down writing a letter to Santa Claus at Christmas and saying, yeah. this is what I want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The language of demands is interesting, and that probably has a pedigree, and I think you could probably make an argument. I'm not well versed in uh, Alinsky, Rules for Radicals. Alinsky, yeah. yeah. Alinsky. So there are certain certain key components about what happened that you can definitely trace back to a history of dissent and a history of radicalization. And you can even see, and I've shown this in the past in my non-official, uh, you know, there's the Evergreen documentary and then there's about 104 videos that I did just going through all the stuff and all the emails and stuff. This is kind of the raw data, but there are documents that they use during orientations, during privilege workshops that are just pages out of a com communist-ish, uh, uh, you know, American, uh, you know, dissenters handbook, you know, anarchist cookbook kind of thing for, you know, the politically uh, active. So, from the administration and from the faculty were 
promulgated these ideas of standing up, of protesting, of, you know, a part of this tradition. And the students kind of hobbled all that together. And there was just enough of a critical mass. And this does have to do with what was happening off the campus and the ways in which the campus framed what was happening off the campus with regards to President Trump. They perceived that President Trump was basically Hitler reincarnate and that as soon as he came into power, we would now all be in these concentration camps and immigrants would be slain in the streets and the alt-right would take that as the, well, the alt-right, whatever that means, the radical right would take President Trump's ascendancy to power as carte blanche to basically take over the sorry, universe. Sorry, so I, as just a quick rewind there. All this stuff that was going to happen because Trump was president. I mean, I've, yeah. I've, I've seen that kind of stuff. Yeah, but stand-up comedians and stuff maybe. But do you, are you saying that they this was actively believed that there was a that they actually there was a real sense that this is what they thought would happen in the United States? Yeah, 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 yeah. If there's footage that I how found, how does that happen? I... How do you get to the point where? Hmm. I mean, that implies a complete hollowing out of the of any faith in the, the, the court system, in con Justice. Congress, in local, the state, the, the power of the, of the state, yeah. the, 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 the several states, so the, federal, the, 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 the police, the, everybody, it, it implies everybody has to fail for that kind of stuff to happen. You have to have a complete failure of confidence, of self-belief. They, yeah. It's like they don't believe in the United States in any sense anymore as an idea. No, no, no. That that has been actively rooted out and selected uh, through various different pressures uh, by the Evergreen uh, acceptance rate and uh, the way that it just had a tradition of being, uh, you know, socialist, communist, leftish. Uh, there's always a great distrust of uh, and a focusing on the United States as a vehicle of terror, power, blood money, you know, imperialist, imperialist blood money. Um, which is really interesting because what actually comes out of what happened at the Evergreen State College, what actually uh, those protests led to was not the overthrow of the institutional power, but the concentration of power within the institution into the upper echelon. So what the Evergreen administration used the protests to affect was more power over teachers and students by means of all these various different equity and inclusion and, uh, you know, these bureaus of uh, equal opportunity where you could be complained for mispronouncing somebody's pronoun or, you know, forgetting that they're a they and not a he. Um, and then you would get called in and you would be subject to potentially weeks of this trial without, you know, actual due process because, you know, you're just being told that you can't say certain things because that is harmful. Language is harmful. So there, there's all these different things that are happening with regards to what is happening in this corridor of the Pacific Northwest and in California, where there's a deep distrust of the federal government. There's a deep distrust of the United States as a project. And there are certain interests that are using that distrust to actually gather more control and centralize control 
in these different government institutions. So you could really make an argument that Portland and uh, Seattle are uh, using the distrust of Trump to actually gain more power locally. And that's why there's very selective reporting on these riots and on these protests. There was a protest pro-police uh, yesterday or the day before then that was not reported at all. And this is up in Seattle. You know, thousands of people showed up to support police. That wasn't reported at all in the local media. That was re reported on Twitter and stuff. But the local media is very selective in reporting what they want you to see. And there is there's certain interests behind that. I, I don't I don't think I, I don't know how to you know, actually lay that out without being conspiratorial, but there is something weird going on with this, the use of distrust of power to gain more power. So how does it, how does this, how does the revolution end? What happens? What's, mm. What are the outcomes for, for, the, for the university? For Evergreen State College? Yeah. So what happens is that the, the protests come and go. The administration uses this to, you know, say, okay, we're here for these students. We're going to give them extra space. So they give them uh, segregation rooms, you know, rooms where uh, that are for certain races. Um, but they don't say that if you're not that race, you can't come in, but you're encouraged not to go to those things, you know. And there's these, they hire more bureaucrats to give these, you know, lectures and ceremonies and stuff like that. And there's workshops. There's this, uh, there's 20, um, series of photos that I found um, that my friend took while they were they went on campus and there's this marquee and the marquee said you know support group for women of color support group for men of color and then uh, what, what what was it like how to unlearn your whiteness <laughs> for the white people right so there's support groups and then there's a breakdown group for white people or for the the, uh, the idea of whiteness and with regards to that day of absence thing where Traditionally, students of color would go off campus to do workshops and to find solidarity and to kind of show how they're integral to the workings of campus. In 2017, due to Trump's ascendancy to power, they decided to center the campus on students of color and they invited white students to go off campus. And that's there's some drama in there. But if you actually look at what they taught during these workshops and seminars is that all these students of color learned how evil whiteness is and how they're complicit. If you were Jewish or Asian, you're actually, you know, kind of more white and you need to un you need to unlearn your whiteness. And then off campus for the white people was a bunch of like, why am I so privileged whiteness ceremonies and stuff like that? Terrible, terrible stuff. How terrible, does, terrible, terrible stuff. It's not it's not a, maybe a, a big point, although I, I, I know for some people is is how, how does that when you start to break everybody down into their identities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and look at their privilege on the basis yeah. of that and understanding that whiteness is a virus yeah and that we can never really escape our whiteness but that we have to live and deal with it every day fighting and battling it no you're in the east you're in the pacific east west coast right but by, by the pacific yeah. coast the west coast where it with very large uh, asian population which, I mean, as a proportion of, as it's spread out in, in the rest of the United States, proportionately. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at people with, with ancestry from, from East Asia, these, they do historic, at, let's say, at educational level, they tend to do much better than white people. 
how how does that work in this context? We, I mean, California, the California Supreme Court made a ruling that race could not be in it could not be used. Uh, they're putting that up to vote, actually. They want to reverse that ruling. The University of San Francisco has recently explicitly said that they're going to refuse to, to obey that. And because what that tends to mean is you're, you're back in the same situation as you were with Harvard back in the 50s, where there were just too many damn Jews, hmm. as uh, it was observed at the time, because you've got the Jewish students coming in from the, 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 you know, the, the, the elite public schools in New York and Mm. different ethnicities at different times from different cultures will prosper and do particularly well but yeah. if you're if if you if you break everything down to race how do you work it out when one of the races which isn't the how do, how does that work well that, do they just become white by adoption because that's what happened with jews until around 1945 yeah. 1950 jews were not white then after yeah. 1950, when Jews were both materially and educationally in other, other, other way doing really well, they became white. Are Asians yeah. becoming white? It, it's a war. The whole race thing is a really shallow packaging for this stuff, and it really breaks down. Hopefully it's so stupid and thin that it will burn itself out pretty quickly because it just doesn't really make sense if you divide everybody based on race and culture is a better thing but really it is a war on merit there is an even distribution of rewards across society rather than looking at what causes that distribution they name that distribution power and then they try to invert that it's it's kind of a neo-marxist kind of we need to level everything so that there's no more inequality inequality itself is bad and i think of it as somehow the end result of uh cultural relativism in a way where all these cultures are mixing in the in the american project they're all equal let's just say but then it turns out that they're not all equal that certain cultures prioritize certain forms of behavior and from that prioritization of behavior comes different results if you enshrine education if you enshrine hard work if you disincentivize people from complaining about hard work and say no it doesn't matter you know basically if you have a tiger mom who just says shut up and and read your math book shut up and do that shut up and do that the 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 communities that prioritize that being let's say jews and asians in a certain certain uh, cultures within those cultures and certain cultures within white culture they really prioritize hard work and you know very definite rooted and imperialist kind of thought and i guess in certain forms of liberalism and capitalism and that leads to outcomes where these these groups amass power amass wealth other groups are left behind now rather than actually going in and saying well what's going on inside of the culture that we're trying to solve we're going to say that that culture has a history of oppression and we need to kind of make reparations for that destruction of that culture and i don't want to oversimplify the plight of the african-american uh, culture within america there's a definite uh, causal relationship between slavery and everything after slavery and the conditions of that community right now the what i want to argue against is the way to get out of that is not to give them more money but to give them you know different values around entrepreneurialism and you know proprietorship and ownership and uh self uh 
self-responsibility. And there's certain aspects within the progressive project that limit the ability to develop self-responsibility and merit. And that's what you see at the Evergreen State College. There's a lot of people who are very unaware of how they're behaving because they're, they're free from that self-reflection. Perhaps better, better schools. Um, yeah. Ronald well, Fry, yeah. Ronald Fryer talks about this in a, uh, in a very fine piece of work. He, he won a pri- the international prize for from the the, high, the School of Economics in Barcelona, and he he looks at outcomes, particularly for for uh, for young uh, for uh, African American children who are going to urban schools, city city schools, and it's incredible that if you, if you can correct for education, that it's absolutely potentially transformative. Mm-hmm. That if you look at the children in eighth grade who are achieving at the same level, irrespective of race, that you can basically bring that forward to when they're 30, 35. And you can, you can make disappear incoming in, in, in the normal income inequalities based mm-hmm. on if, you're tra- if you can be, if you can score the same level at eighth grade. So I think, yeah. say, I don't, I'm not getting into the argument with the United States how they run their schools, but say charter schools and, and voucher systems and more choice for, it seems to me, it might be worth a try there at least. Mm-hmm. But it, I know that runs against the orthodoxy. I just want to get, I don't want to get into the politics of what you, it struck me when you listed out a number of the cities where there's things, I think it's like Chicago, uh, Portland, Seattle, and wherever—you—you—you you, you refer to them as democratic cities. Do you think there's a problem yeah. here that's linked to a change, or something, something going on within the Democratic Party? I think that there's an ethos that causes the uh, you know cities to vote in Democrats, and then there's a historical aspect too. But there's an ethos within the Democratic Party that is cosmopolitan and that suits big cities and suits more multicultural environments and suits you know kind of uh, the mixture of cultures and more and more tolerance for difference within cities. But there's certain outlying problems with that ideology that cause... Um, that, that reinforce, especially right now with the dire polarization and this very strange um, demonization of Donald Trump, not to say he's perfect at all, but the way in which he's framed as being you know, the harbinger of evil uh, and the way that the media reports on him from the liberal lens is constantly negative and very, it's very... It's very wrong the way that that they frame him, but they frame him as the bad guy in order to kind of cover up their own failings. If they can have a bad guy off campus, then everything that we do on campus, speaking evergreen way, it's fine. Like we need to protect these students. The students just need to get their yayas out because they are feeling embattled. If they walk out of their door off campus, they're going to get shot. They're going to get shot. Like, look at there's thousands of people dying every day because the police are just going around shooting minorities. That's just kind of like the, this aggregate kind of belief system that's self-reinforced. And then with the breakdown of nuance within public debate, it really leads to young people uh, acting crazy and then old people not being able to stop them or older people not being able to stop them. So I, I think that there's 
to try to answer your question, I can't answer that question, but I do think that there's a mashup of ethics going on within the democratic kind of mindset, within the liberal progressive mindset that are leading to more and more problems with regards to having a stable normative morality on any level and enforcing that because the the value of tolerance is much more important than the value of stability and that's why we're having the breakdown of stability because things are getting too tolerant and therefore the least tolerant get to win you, 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 you said earlier and i think you you're you're right you, you got closer to what i was trying to express with you that the, this racial politics is identity politics as it's presented is, is pretty thin it's a pretty thin yeah. bag to, to carry what it's, it's holding and i yeah. i thought it was cute there was an interesting statement made by a leader of, of the naacp i think in uh portland a few days ago when he said whatever this started out as it has now become a white spectacle hmm. and i i get the feeling that from certain people looking out looking at it from outside there's a sense that this is not that much for a lot of these people really about the uplift of deprived african americans but that's a useful meme to use that yeah. people who care about racial issues you know the phrase that lenin used the useful idiots these are people that can be useful in advancing another agenda. Now, I don't want to get tinfoil hat about this, but you, you, yeah. you, you, you said you referenced Saul Alinsky here. And it, this isn't, we know how the far left progresses. It's, it's written down and it's been very, very successful because the left understands one thing very often that people, moderates and conservatives don't, which is the guy who turns up gets the win. You know, you buy the ticket, you win the lottery. And most of the mm. time, people on the other side of the divider are interested in other stuff. Mm. So it isn't too far to say this is an opportunity. A crisis is an opportunity. So yeah. You're, you're, you're saying you're, you're an Olympian. To what extent are you aware of what's happening, say, in Seattle or Portland? I keep my tabs on it, but it kind of is distressing. Um, if you kind of my tact on, I guess it's kind of an enterprise that I'm doing right now with regards to being an independent content creator. I'm more interested in what the adults are doing and how the adults are using the so-called useful uh, Moltov cocktail brandishing forces of the uh, uh, black blockitariat. Um, all that unrest, just like at Evergreen. Okay, this is what happened. This is what happened. But what does it mean? What causes it and then who takes advantage of it and stuff. So I, I kind of I tune in, I see what's happening on Portland. You know, it's just one incident after another, but what's actually gonna happen, we're not gonna know until kind of the dust goes away. And I don't think that the dust is going to settle because right around the corner here we're gonna have an election on November third. And I don't think that that's going to shape out the way that the uh you know uh the left wants it to um yeah. but maybe the left doesn't want it to work out in their favor so they can keep on acting like they are acting i want to just go back to a couple of things there for in, in one second but, um one of the stories that unfortunately we hear over the ebi and, and gripped media seems mm -hmm. to spend too much of our time discussing is what we call the meta news 
that there's a sense that too much of the time what the news we talk about is the news that hasn't been reported. Mm. You're mm-hmm. closer to it. Uh, one of the things, yeah. that the, 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 the reporting of the, the protests, if we call, shall we say, the mostly, I love the phrase, the mostly peaceful protests. I mean, yeah. what percentage yeah. of a protest has to be peaceful to make it mostly peaceful? Mm. You're, by simple proximity, I, you probably have a better sense of what's going on there. Do you think that there has been a, I'm not saying a conscious, but a cultural choice, an unconscious cultural choice, but the reporting just isn't happening of a certain kind. You, you said there was a protest in favor of police recently, mm-hmm. which simply wasn't reported. Yeah. You, you think that's just happening everywhere? Um, I think that it plays into a certain narrative. I think that this is this is impossible. This is way out of my wheelhouse. So I'm just going to say things that I've heard and that resonate for me. But it seems to be the case that what the left wants more than anything is to provoke a uh, reaction from Donald Trump with regards to a show of force then they can have what they wanted, which is proof that he's a fascist. So I think that they're playing this game of trying to provoke him. And he's a little bit smarter than them. Uh, For all of his faux pas and his limitations, he's a pretty good strategist. And he's just letting them kind of basically break down. Now, the federal government decided to protect federal property. Um, And then they withdrew, and what happened was that the protesters just went on to terrorize actual citizens, and the feds are just backing off and stuff. And eventually the Democratic leaders, or the Democrat leaders, are going to uh, need to show force on their own, and they're trying to make Trump do it, because they know that any form of authority is evil. Any form of I, 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 this is very metaphorical speaking. Any form of masculine or patriarchal enforcement of norms, which would be through a hard line, um, there's a line in the sand. If you cross this, you will get hurt, right? Uh, we will punish you. Well, let's say punitive and not necessarily just physical, but you will feel re- repercussions. There is this desire to want to soften repercussions in order for people to have more wiggle room, to go through restorative justice, to go, uh, you know, a more motherly, more forgiving sort of community. The problem with that is that what happens when you have, you know, on a game theory level, what happens when you have bad actors? The, the, the patriarchy or the authoritarian concentrates the bad actors and then you kind of have to fight over that bad actor if if the authoritarian is the bad actor then we're all screwed right but if there is no authority if there's no hardline authority that says you cannot act this way then people will act any way they want they'll flood out into the highways they'll burn down businesses they'll you know cause major destruction uh, on a monetary level and then you know and then cause people to want to flee the city because there's no more cops there anymore or the cops aren't allowed there's no more authority there's no more social order in in the pursuit of making a more tolerant society they're eroding the fabric of society in a certain way. So I think we have a very difficult conception of what is it to be a a positive version of that kind of male-ish or, you know, kind of patriarchal authority. We've lost that. We've degraded it over time. And I'm speaking metaphorically, but we've degraded that over time so that we have a bunch of soft leaders. 
or leaders that we think of as tyrants who aren't, such as Trump. So either the choice is you either have a tyrant or else, in a sense, you, you're going back to the evergreen, you have an absence of an adult in the room. Yeah, yeah, so just, yeah. You have these kids who are behaving like children rather than you know, and they are being else, yeah. pacified. They're being indulged. Coddled, yeah, yeah. totally, Coddled. absolutely. And here we are in August. The uh, the election is, even if Donald doesn't want it, is going to be in November. Do you think this is there? Is the energy there? Is this going to keep rumbling on, going rolling on? Is it going to hit other cities? I mean, I'm I'm asking you to look in a, in a, in a, yeah. a crystal ball here. Yeah, I think that it's hard to say. I think people are going to get more and more fed up with it, though. I think that the Antifa is doing more to reelect Donald Trump than anybody on Trump's side in a certain way. And I think they kind of want that because if they have Trump in power, then they can keep on acting like children. Um, and they are coddled and protected by a nasty press. Our, our press is insanely in just insanely nasty and twisted it's absolutely horrendous what the liberal media has done and what they've decided to do and how they've allowed certain sorts of authoritarian strains to take itself over with regards to the new york times and you know the washington post it's incredibly biased news so they're facilitating this too so i, I really do think that the only thing that's going to really turn us around is the unpacking or the, the the backing away from the sensationalism and the connection with people in real time the going back into a more human form of connectivity that has more patience to it sort of like conversations right now and i think that we're actually very fortunate with regards to covid19 or rather the response to this virus and the fact that it has really caused people to disconnect and to start to reconnect in certain ways well, there's a lot of disturbance on the street because the kids don't have anything better to do but the adults are actually investing more in different forms of communication, different forms of media. And I think that that will eventually lead uh, us out of this fever dream. That's my hope. But it, it, do you think, isn't it possible that if, say, we look to the, if not to the, the writers, but the readers of the New York Times and the Washington Post, what they don't get about Antifa is that Antifa don't look at Joe Biden and think, oh, God, it wouldn't be great. Wouldn't Joe be great? Joe Biden is essentially the same thing ideologically for them. There's no substantial difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. They're both manifestations of the same fundamentally corrupt system. Trump, yeah. in a sense, is advantageous to them because he provides a greater opportunity for the radicalization of, of society. But mm -hmm. it, they don't think that Biden is a win for them. He, he doesn't, he doesn't, Biden as a, some kind of a traditional Democrat doesn't represent their values at all. And I think that maybe people don't get that. They think that this is a binary choice. That for, for people like Antifa, that Joe Biden ain't, ain't, ain't no win. Well, uh, further up the stream, though, I think with the Biden Democrat president, the Democrat uh, local municipalities and state governments will say, OK, enough is enough. We got what we wanted. So we're going to put down the unrest. You know, I think that that's they'll be justified in, in you know, kind of showing their authoritarian side. And then what's going to happen in the wake of that is more and more trainings and all this 
mindfuckery, uh, all this dogma is going to come down the pipes of us having to go along with this anti-racist progressive program. So ultimately what we have is more bureaucracy if, if Biden gets in. Georgia. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't remember. You, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Janet Reno. She was the AG to Clinton. A little bit. She, yeah, a little bit. She, she was Clinton's AG. And I can tell you, Janet would not have been taking any shit from these people. It yeah. was Janet, not, I don't think, to her not to her benefit, went into Waco. She was responsible for the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Janet was a tough enough. And there have been plenty of Democrat AGs over the years who would look at the situation today and think, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine did comment about the, the attempt to burn down the police union in, I think, in Portland. How bad, was these, last night. how bad are these people at arson? They just can't seem to burn anything. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'll, ask, I'll just finish on this, on this, this, this last question, then I'll, I'll release you back into the wild. Um, we, we've heard the, the elections uh, are upcoming. Um, ultimately, you said people are getting fed up and becoming more and more fed up. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. We hope we're going to start to see a tableau we, plateau. We hope, everybody hopes, somebody's going to come running out of a lab very soon with a lovely shiny vaccine that they can distribute mm. in hundreds of millions all over the place. But allowing for a, the fact that events happen, you don't think, I gather, that it is a slam dunk that Trump is going to lose. Why is that? You think he's going to lose? No, I, have, I have no opinion. I, my sense is, and I, this is simply from watching uh, from a distance that I think that Biden is a problem. I think the guy does give the impression of not being quite sure where he is. And yeah. when people said this to me at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is the usual. This is Hillary with the cough. And the, again, it's this, this nonsense. This seems to be a little bit more than that. It does seem to be genuinely confused at times. And I think you put him in the last four weeks of a presidential campaign and you put him on television in a debate against Donald Trump who has no ethics or morality about how you treat somebody in a debate and will do whatever is necessary to confuse and to befuddle anybody if he can. I think mm -hmm. that Biden could, if he could be a serious, serious uh, problem yeah. for the Democrats. Yeah. How do you think? Yeah. Well, I, it comes down to this. This is, this is my opinion. If, I'm worried about what the left is going to do if Biden gets elected. And I'm worried about what the left is going to do if Trump gets reelected. So I, I'm really worried about the left. And because I've been studying it. So my perspective on it is probably skewed. Uh, and I'm probably not accurate in my perception of it. I find some of the ideas that are going on with regards to what is called social justice or intersectionality or postmodern activist uh, thought and the way that it's going and spreading through education and the way that it's causing the young people to perceive reality, I, I find a lot to worry about within that. And I don't think that that will be challenged uh, by Biden. I think that it will be forwarded by Biden. And I think that that actually anti-racism or whatever you want to call it, um, and it works as well with gender and, and the transgender topic, 
it really works in the favor of corporations to suppress society and to suppress uh, to, to, to introduce tension between persons by devolving them into their uh, categories of identity. Uh, I think that that's a huge problem that's going to have very big effects. And I think that if Trump gets reelected, the agitation will rise several notches, but that will kind of force these ideas to really show themselves for what they are. And if Biden gets elected, I think that they're just going to become a part of law and we won't see the effects for, for longer and they'll be more difficult to root out in the end. So that's my perspective and that's a very partial perspective. And I understand that there's other problems with Trump presidency with regards to how he's forming the federal government around loyalism and, and cronyism. And there's problems with that. And there's probably a lot of illegal behavior that, that Trump is doing that that's really not good. But at the same time, I, I, don't, I think that Biden will just be a figurehead for the neoliberal capitalist elites to, you know, kind of squeeze people and befuddle them with identity politics. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm debating. I don't know about the future, though. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, on that cheerful note, I'd like to thank again uh, Benjamin for joining us, and and maybe and I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll we'll chat again sometime in the future, maybe in more detail about this as things move on. I'd like to recommend to you go onto YouTube, you look for Benjamin A. Boyce there, and there you'll find a lot of stuff will come up. Um, you can go by the dates stuff on the on the the the. Uh, the processes of evergreen there's a really couple of really interesting interviews with uh, brett weinstein which i think are well worth watching. and and you're also in the process of producing a long a long documentary about the sort of chronological documentary on uh, yeah. on the uh, on the evergreen campus problem and which will be up soon so keep your eyes out for that and until then i'd like to thank you for joining us and thank you again benjamin thank you thanks so much for having me on michael